Getting ready to take on spring? Make your first move with the reliable performance and power of steel tools. From hedge trimmers and mowers to string trimmers and more, right now you can save $20 on the steel MS-162 or MS-170 chainsaw. Real steel. Offer valid through June 30th, 2024. See participating retailer for details. Getting ready to take on spring? Make your first move with the reliable performance and power of steel tools. From hedge trimmers and mowers to string trimmers and more, right now save $30 on the American-made steel FS56 RCE trimmer. Real steel. The FS56 RCE is made in America of U.S. and global materials. Offer valid through June 16, 2024. See participating retailer for details. Jurgen Klinsmann remains a fascinating, curious, and polarizing figure in American soccer. His positive attitude and easygoing demeanor, combined with a cosmopolitan image and legendary playing status, make him instantly likable and attractive. But he can also rub folks the wrong way. And as we know only too well, his big picture zen-like approach can get old. Hello, sunshine. I'm Alexi Lawless, and welcome to the State of the Union podcast, where we look at the beautiful game on and off the field through the lens of red, white, and blue-colored glasses. As you heard, we'll be talking about the return of our good old friend Jurgen Klinsmann in our Mossy Makes the Case segment. Mossy's going to be talking about the importance of language within a team in our Ask Alexi segment. We'll be talking about Mexico and Top Gun. In our Back 3 uh, segment, we'll be talking about the U.S. men's national team and women's national team Player of the Year nominations that have come out and so much more. But first, joining me as always, my friend, my colleague, my guiding light, David Mossy, a soccer savant and a Fox soccer researcher and writer extraordinaire. Mossy, how are you on this Monday morning? Now, for those that listen to, before you answer, for those that listen to the uh, pod last week, you will know that I did not mention once your beloved Wolverines of the University of Michigan, knowing that a huge game was upon us this weekend. This game came and went, certainly did not live up to billing in terms of the competition. The uh, Buckeyes over there of Ohio State came into the big house in Michigan over there in uh, Ann Arbor and completely decimated your Wolverines. Not only on the field did they decimate him uh, from a physical perspective and a, and a scoreboard perspective, but obviously they decimated from a mental perspective because your coach, uh, Mr. Harbaugh over there that you always talk about and who always loves to extol the virtues of his program and the fact that he graduates so many players, was beyond himself in the uh, post-game press conference, so much so that he took affront and offense to everything that was said, said, I'm not going to answer any of your insults, but I'll answer your questions. It was a joy, joy to behold from someone for, for, from the outside like myself. Mossy, your take on your Wolverines getting completely blown off the field at home to the Buckeyes of Ohio State. I had a weirdly good feeling about this game going in, and it proved to be unwarranted. Really? Um, it, it really is one of the more humiliating defeats in my history as a sports fan and certainly in the history of Michigan football. Uh, Michigan fans are now grappling with this question of, has Ohio State just moved to a different level as a program and we can't compete with them? There are years where this game has been close and it makes you think, well, you know, maybe it, this gap is surmountable. And then there are years like this one where you walk away thinking, oh, my God, they're just on a whole different level right now. Mr. Harbaugh there, uh, is this a Harbaugh out type of seminal moment for him in a negative sense? And 
Is a football coach of the University of Michigan in 2019, is he or she paid all of this money and given all of this power and this wonderful position to graduate players or to win football games? <laughs> no, that's the Shaw Brown argument, which, you know, I've never subscribed to. Uh, so Shaw you don't Brown. care about your graduation rate as long as you beat Ohio State. Uh, Shaw Brown is a colleague of ours at Fox who likes to play the we're doing it the right way card while Ohio State is cheating. And that's how he rationalizes these embarrassing defeats. I've never gone. Shaw down Brown, that one of our path. producers uh, yes. at Fox and a uh, devout uh, Michigan Wolverine uh, alumni and fan. Now, listen, I've mentioned this before. Michigan is scarred by the fact that uh, the two coaches before Harbaugh was so bad and completely destroyed the program that there's something to be said for Harbaugh just getting it back to being pretty good. So uh, I don't see them getting rid of him unless they have a very good alternative, which they don't right now. I do wonder about him uh, because every year his name gets floated for NFL jobs. He still has some juice in the NFL world because he did do a very good job there. He took the 49ers to the Super Bowl. And at what point is he going to say, look, I might as well go back to NFL because I'm, I'm getting my brains beat in here. This is just hurting my reputation. Wow. So. I think he's suspect, Mossy. I think he's suspect. And I don't think he stays there much longer. All right. Uh, but this is good because we're talking about coaches and a lot of the uh, segments uh, that we were talking about uh, this week on the State of the Union podcast are going to be talking about uh, the importance, the influence uh, of coaches uh, for a team. All right, Moss, you ready to light this candle? Yep. All right. As you know, each and every week we kick the pot off with Alexi Lawless's State of the Union. Yes, it's time for my State of the Union where I look at a part of the game from an American perspective. And this week it goes a little something like this. Our old friend Jurgen Klinsmann is back. It's been three years since he last coached and 10 years since he last coached at a club setting. But last weekend, he took over the reins at struggling Bundesliga club, Eartha Berlin. Now, it's not where many expected Klinsmann to reemerge, but given his position on Eartha's advisory board, it made practical sense, especially in a temporary capacity. First game out didn't go well for Klinsmann as Hertha lost at home to Dortmund two to one, despite being up a man for half the game. Jurgen Klinsmann remains a fascinating, curious, and polarizing figure in American soccer. But he's always been a man continually straddling different cultures and countries, and seemingly trying to fit in, and not always successfully. A little too German for America, and a little too American for Germany. His positive attitude and easygoing demeanor, combined with a cosmopolitan image and legendary playing status, make him instantly likable and attractive. But he can also rub folks the wrong way, and as we know only too well, his big picture zen-like approach can get old, especially when combined with bad results. Even his first game with Hertha gave us some vintage Klinsmann. As he stood on the sideline, he pulled out his phone and started documenting the pageantry and chaos surrounding him. It's a little thing, but certainly different. But that's Jurgen. He's used soccer to see the world, and he often sees the world differently. But when it comes to how he's seen as a coach, to some, He's an original breath of fresh air, challenging tradition. To others, he's a master showman peddling style over substance. But for Hertha, it doesn't matter what he is, as long as he wins. All right, Mossy, so there is uh, my State of the Union for today. Uh, Jurgen Klinsmann, the gift that keeps on giving in terms of content. He uh, gave us so many uh, wonderful uh, pieces of content over the years, and he's back. Uh, what, what, are your, what were your thoughts initially when uh, this was announced and then after the weekend? Well, a little bit more background here. In mid-October, 
Uh, Jurgen Klinsmann was reportedly on the verge of becoming the Ecuador national team coach. It was to the point where Tim Vickery was already writing columns about what Ecuador were going to look like under Klinsmann, and then that fell through for whatever reason at the last moment. Then early November, he joined the Hertha advisory board, and their manager at the time, Ante Kovic, was on very shaky ground. And Ian Joy, to his credit, uh, fired off text to us saying, look, it I wouldn't surprise me at all if Klinsman ends up being the coach. And it played out exactly how Ian predicted. Uh, Kovic was sacked and Jurgen Klinsman took over. Now, Hertha reportedly did go after Nico Kovac, who did not want to jump back in right. just a few weeks after being sacked by Bayern. The expectation is that Kovac will take over at the end of the season. Klinsman is just an interim guy. But I do wonder if Klinsman does well and Kovic, for whatever reason, uh, doesn't end up going there. If Klinsman would want to stay on the job or go to a different job, or even if Kovac takes over, if Klinsman would then move upstairs uh, to the front office but want to be actively involved. Mm-hmm. I wonder to what degree he's back in the game and wants to get his hands dirty again, or if this is just something he's doing for a few months, and then when the dust settles, if he has to go back to what he's been doing for the last three years, which is just kind of chilling out on the sidelines, he'd be fine with that too. I mean, what's your sense there? I get the feeling that this was something that while he wanted to do it, and as I said in the State of the Union, I don't think any of us expected that this was where he was going to reemerge to us all in the, uh, in the coaching capacity. You mentioned the international aspect, and I do think that that's something that he enjoys for a number of different reasons. It's obviously a very different type of coaching. Uh, that international cosmopolitan type of thing, I think, appeals to him. I, I do think that this, is, that this is temporary, but I don't think that that itch to coach has gone anywhere. So in a certain way, I think that he... He wasn't forced to do this, but I think it was he was there, it was available, and it was a way to kind of dip his toe back into that coaching rank without going full full on. Now he's gonna at some point he will go full on. If that's a good or a bad thing, I know that's a longer conversation because Jurgen Klinsmann, having covered him, having uh, knowing him, I, I think that at this point, the way that I would frame Jurgen Klinsmann is that, and I and I said a little bit in the State of the Union, he's a much more he's much better at the bigger picture, at the long term. And in a strange sense, he was a much better technical director, if you will, than actual coach or manager with the X's and O's and the day-to-day type of stuff. I was going to ask you about that. Klinsmann still gets a lot of mileage out of uh, those two years in Germany, that whole idea of Das reboot, that he Mm -hmm. was instrumental in rebuilding that program and all these new ideas about player development. Uh, now, just because you do a good job in one situation doesn't mean it's going to sure. translate. Do Especially you, Germany for that. <laughs> yeah. Do you, do, you, do you buy that notion that Klinsmann, whatever you think of him as a coach, as a tactician that does have some interesting ideas that could be useful to any program? So you, you do buy into that to I, some degree? I believe, because there was a lot of talk uh, over the years that it was really Yogi Love that was, that was doing all the work and it was really his brainchild and stuff like that. I think Jurgen... And that's, I don't think that's fair to Jurgen. I think that he was involved. I think Jurgen can be beneficial in terms of looking at pictures. And also in terms of making us look at things differently. And when I say us, whoever is involved in that room that he, is, that he would be currently involved in, in saying, I know this is how it's been done, but think about it this way. Or pushing people and prodding people at times to think about things or to move in a different way that maybe they hadn't thought about or not comfortable. And this gets back to his comfort level and stuff like that. Sometimes he does that too much, and sometimes he pushes you in a way that not only you're not comfortable, but ultimately it's destructive and it, and it doesn't work out. But I do respect the fact that he thinks about things differently. My question to you and my question to our listeners and to all our watchers out there, because uh, at a time when we are talking, and this is why I wanted to talk about Jurgen Klinsmann. Obviously, Jurgen Klinsmann has come and gone and moved on. But he's still part of our consciousness, and he's still part of this American psyche uh, when it comes to American soccer. 
if you could right now snap your fingers and have Jurgen Klinsmann as the head coach of the U.S. men's national team right now, where we are right now, and Greg Berhalter not, would you make that trade right now? Masi, I ask you, and I'm asking everybody out there, and send us all your uh, answers out there. Uh, with that hashtag asked the last Yeah, I mean, I, I will answer that, but I, I do want to say it is okay. interesting that Canada loss. You're right. Klinsman's return to coaching has become a chance to sort of relitigate his legacy as U.S. coach. And I thought it was particularly interesting after the Canada loss, which set off a lot of discussions about bigger picture issues with U.S. soccer. There's two camps. There are those that look at it and say the fact that the U.S. didn't qualify for the World Cup under Bruce Arena and is struggling so far under Greg Berhalter makes Klinsman look better by mm -hmm. comparison. And then there are those who think the U.S. is still paying for Klinsman's mistakes and decisions he made that set them on this negative course they're still in. So it's interesting. I, in looking back at Klinsman's five-year tenure, to me, he didn't elevate the program that much in terms of results or quality of play. To me, what he ended up doing was sort of in line with what previous managers had done. But and you don't so, feel that he regressed it in that we are paying for his No, sins. I think that's harsh, but but I think he's always been better in theory than in practice, so I don't think if he took over, if you made that trade, that he would do anything extra special beyond what Greg Berhalter is doing now. So so I probably wouldn't make that trade. I think the U.S. needs to move okay. on from Klinsman. But, but they're better off now in your mind th than if they, if they had Jurgen Klinsman at this point. Yeah, I, I just think he 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 didn't okay. he had five years and he didn't really elevate the, the U.S. from a, from a from a overall quality of play standpoint or in, or results. I mean, he wasn't for the money he was commanding, the power that he accrued, and just the the rhetoric, what everything he promised. I thought ultimately it was pretty underwhelming. Now uh, I always say this, and and I truly believe it: life isn't fair, and soccer isn't fair. If Jurgen Klinsmann wasn't the Jurgen Klinsmann uh, player with that phenomenal resume. Is there a chance in hell that he would be where he was? And look, we have all benefited from being a player in certain ways, and doors are opened uh, for all of us in different ways. But I say this because we have, for example, Landon Donovan is starting his, his coaching career down in, down in San Diego. And the opportunities, and as, as I said, those doors that are afforded to people who were able to kick the ball well, uh, and some very, very well, are are obvious at times. Some of them, sometimes they're not obvious, but they, conti they continue on. Jurgen Klinsmann, he has lived off, obviously, what that German team did that he was a, a, a part of, but there's no way that he gets to where he is if his name was John. <laughs> <laughs> no, and, and the club resume, coaching-wise, is particularly right. thin. Uh, his only previous club coaching experience was a disaster with Bayern Munich. It didn't even last a full season. As a Bundesliga researcher, uh, it's amazing how often I come across a Bayern stat. This is their worst performance since the year when Jurgen Klinsmann was the coach. The first time they lost to this team since the Jurgen Klinsmann year. So it really was a disaster. And you mentioned ten, a 10-year gap is, is a it's long amazing. time to be out of the club game. I frankly wonder about about Klinsman's successor with Germany, Yogi Love, who hasn't managed a club since 2004, and what's going to become of his career when he leaves Germany. But yeah, so for Klinsman to get this opportunity now with Hertha Berlin is purely based on his name and his stature as a player, because there's nothing club-wise in his resume that, that would make him a logical candidate for any club right now to, to hand their reins yeah, to and, and as I said, this isn't sp specific to Jurgen Klinsman. This happens, has happened, will continue to happen. I mean, we see I mean, Wayne Rooney was uh, was introduced today and all, all the different stuff that goes on. And it, by the way, it doesn't mean that th you can't use that opportunity. We all use our opportunities in different ways. A door opens, but it will close if you can't do the job. Frank Lampard, 
There's no way Frank Lampard is where he is if he's not Frank. If he's not Frank Lampard, and that's, it's not. It's not that there's no way. That's 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 also maybe a little unfair. But it's a whole lot harder path, and a, and a definitely a lot longer of a path for every Jose Mourinho. Okay, who is an anomaly. There are so many others that have to take a very, very difficult path and rarely ever achieve the level that some of these guys get to backdoor into. And when I say these guys, I'm, I'm part of that part of that club. I have gotten been given opportunities because of what I did on the field and who I was as a player and a, and a personality. I get that. But you better use it. Frank Lampard, for example, is, is using that opportunity. I don't think that this is going to change anybody's opinion, the the time that Jurgen Klinsmann is at Hertha, Hertha Berlin, because as I said, I think he has different or higher aspirations, depending on, how, uh, depending on how, you, how you look at it, but that this is the first time we are judging him again, I use that word loosely, judging him again as a coach is very, very interesting. I do hope, whatever you think of Klinsman as a coach and Klinsman as a man, that, that nobody ever loses sight of what a great player he was and what a fascinating career he had. Yep. Uh, obviously, 11 career World Cup goals, a World Cup winner, Euro 96 winner. But at club level, he rose to prominence with Stuttgart, then goes to Italy at a time where that was the place to be. And you know, Milan was doing the Dutch sure. thing with Van Basten, Van Basten and Gullit and Reichardt. And so uh, Inter went the Germany route with uh, Klinsman and Matthias and Andreas Brema. Um, then played at Monaco under Arsene Wenger, had success there. Then Tottenham in the Premier League had success there. Great success with Bayern. I remember we, uh, one of our Europa League shows, we did a feature with uh, Klinsman played in three different UEFA Cup finals, which obviously was a precursor to the Europa League. And it was just him reflecting on those three finals. And it was 89 for Stuttgart against Napoli, Maradona and Carreca and that yeah. team. Then 91 Inter against Roma. And then 96 for Bayern against Bordeaux, who had a young Zinedine Zidane. Wow. So it was him talking about facing Maradona and facing Zidane. And so, I mean, whatever you think of, just talk about a guy that you could sit down and have a beer with and just his playing career and talk about different coaches and managers and countries and leagues that he played in. Just a, a fascinating guy. He is, sure. he is. And look, I have my problems with Jurgen over the years. Some of them are well well documented. We have agreed. We have disagreed. We have vehemently disagreed at different at different times. But like you said, you know, the look, it's it's soccer. It's just soccer. Okay. It's just kicking of a ball. We take it seriously. We love it. We have emotion and passion when it comes to it, but it is ultimately just soccer. And the way that, and I said this in the stadium, the way that he has used the game and he recognized very, very early, it was very smart that this was an opportunity for him to not just see the world, but to experience the world. And he used the ability to transfer to different clubs, to learn new languages, to immerse himself in different cult cultures, and ultimately to make himself not just a better soccer player, but a better, but a better person. But as I also said in the State of the Union, ultimately for any coach, any manager, the soccer gods are going to smile upon you or they're not. You're either going to win or you're not. And he will be judged by the, uh, the wins that he has there for her. That he's got to, you know, it's, it's, a, it's a tall order coming in. So we'll see how if he's able to stabilize that team. Because I think that's really what the, the, the marching orders are. Just stabilize this team. Get it to next summer. We don't care about Champions League or, or Europa League. If you can do that, that's great. But just stabilize it. Obviously, don't even put us in risk uh, of relegation. And if you will have done that, you will have done this organization as Hertha a service. And then you can go on and do, uh, do your other things. Anything else, Mossy? Nope. All right, moving on. Hello, people. Lexi here. More of the State of the Union podcast is on the way. But first, I wanted to tell you about a service every soccer fan needs to check out. Fox Soccer Match Pass. With Fox Soccer Match Pass, you can stream live and on-demand matches from the Bundesliga, international friendlies, and more, all on your favorite devices. And the best part, it's all ad-free, and you can cancel at any time. So check out foxsoccermatchpass.com and get started with a free seven-day trial today. Now, back to the show. Mossy makes the case. 
All right, it's that time again for Mossy Makes a Case. Each week, uh, my friend David Mossy over there makes a case about something that is eating him up inside about in the uh, world of soccer. What are you casing for this week, Mossy? My case is that Unai Emery's Arsenal career might have been a case of lost in translation. For the second straight week, a North London club made news by sacking its manager. After Tottenham parted ways with Mauricio Pochettino, Arsenal pulled the plug on Unai Emery. As is often the case in these situations, the English media is conducting something of an autopsy to determine where it went wrong, and the general consensus is that the language barrier contributed to Emery's downfall. Now, I'm venturing into dangerous territory here. There are those, including his own players apparently, who have mocked Unai Emery's English, and I do not want to be lumped in with that crowd. That's wrong, it's mean-spirited, and it's deserving of condemnation. But there is a conversation to be had about the value of having a strong command of the language of the country you're working in. I've spent the last year studying French and Italian, and I can tell you there's a difference between speaking a language and really speaking it. If you drop me in France or Italy tomorrow, I could function by saying everything in the simplest way possible, but I'm nowhere near the point where I can have thoughtful, nuanced conversations in those languages, and Emery clearly wasn't at that level in English, it meant that every interview amounted to, we played good, we played bad, we tried to win. And it sounds like his team talks with the players weren't much better. So you were left with a manager who was incapable of conveying his ideas properly to the players and unable, after disappointing results, to explain what Arsenal were at least trying to accomplish. In the final analysis, I do wonder if Emery, who's an intelligent man, would not have been better served by using a translator until he had strong command of the English language. I know there's a school of thought that when you move to a foreign country, you score points just for trying. But I do think managers need to be careful that in pursuit of those points, they don't hamper their ability to get enough points on the field. Oh, well done, Mossy. This might have been your, your best. Look, you know, it's always good, and I always love hearing you. But uh, this, this is such an interesting co- uh, topic, uh, and you articulated it in a wonderful way. Well done. Uh, okay, so I have so many questions. In this woke and enlightened world of virtue signaling that we have out there, the mere suggestion, and you you mentioned this, that people should speak the language of whatever entity it ends up being or whatever organization, in this case, whatever team that the majority communicate in, will immediately garner you uh, criticism of being xenophobic or being intolerant or being racist and all all this kind of stuff. It's it's ridiculous to me, uh, especially, not especially, but in, in a situation like a locker room, that the basic form of communication and an understanding f- uh, of that communication shouldn't be sought and shouldn't be something that you would want people to have. And not just the players, but in particular, your coach being able to communicate. Now, look, I've been coached by coaches that... Uh, where English was not the first language, some better than others. And I've played next to players where I was the minority, the vast minority. I mean, when I was in Italy, I was the only player really that spoke any level of English. There were a couple that spoke a little bit. But like you mentioned, it was up to me to be able to adjust. And that the coach didn't speak English meant that, because I, I, like you, while I learned how to speak Italian, it's not as if I could have these in-depth, nuanced type of conversations. So I knew that the level of which our communication was based on one that was 
as low as you could possibly, not as low as you can get, but, but very low, and certainly relative to other, other players and the conversations that we were had. Now, being able to talk about politics with a teammate is, is one thing. That doesn't necessarily mean that you can't uh, uh, talk to somebody about what you need them to do on a soccer field, because ultimately that's what you're, 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 trying, uh, you're trying to do. I do believe that there, you do get points, like you said, as a player and as a coach, for trying. And at times you say, all right, well, meet me halfway. Well, halfway doesn't always, doesn't always work. But you know, once again, in this world where you can get slammed if you're not as inclusive as you possibly can be, this is about winning soccer games. And the ability to communicate and to impart information onto either your teammates or as a coach onto the players that you are coaching is crucial. And if the majority of those are able to speak a certain language, then that's important. That's important in recruiting. Is it the only thing? No. But if I'm hiring a coach and that coach, he or she, can only converse with a few players on the team, yeah, that's a problem. Can you get past that problem? Maybe. But if you say, no, you know what, I can't get past that problem, or it's going to take me too long to get past that problem, you shouldn't have stuff thrown at you or called names because you want to decide that. Mossy, while I am a musician, I don't read music in the way that if you put a piece of music down in front of me, I can, I, I can read it. It would take me a long time to do it. So if, if, if I was putting together a band and I said, you got to be able to read music, okay, that makes sense. That's the quickest form. That's the quickest way for us to get to where we need to go. And as a team, you want to make sure. Now, would I be pushing aside some potentially very good musicians by saying that? Yeah, in including including myself. But do you think that we're making a bigger deal about this than it actually is, and that that people from the outside often say it's much more important or much less important, I guess, than uh, than we do? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I consider myself somebody on the outside. I've never been in a dressing room, and so it's but you something. Can imagine it's not well, that strange to them. But it's it, it's something that interests me. I think a lot from watching these behind the scenes documentaries about these teams. Amazon Prime did one on Dortmund recently, and you could see that uh, Lucien Favre delivers the team talk in German, and then he steps aside and assistant repeats the same exact thing in English, which I thought was fascinating. Also, the Manchester City one, you see Pep delivering these team talks in English, and, and you, they span the dressing room, and there's like 10 different nationalities there, including players they just signed from Spain that are looking with this blank stare, and you're wondering if they're understanding a word that he's saying. And so this whole concept, we talk about how global the game is, and this whole concept of languages and communicating is fascinating to me. Uh, I mean, just a couple of examples that, that have always stuck with me. Carlo Ancelotti talks about how when he was at PSG, his inability to learn French really hampered his work and caused him to want to leave because he wasn't feeling like he was connecting on the level that he likes to at his jobs. Also, Scolari at Chelsea. Scolari is a guy who's never been considered a great tactician, but he's more a player's coach mm -hmm. and motivator, and so it's crucial that he can form those strong bonds with his players. And he said uh, not being able to speak English that well really hampered him in that regard. So, you know, but then people can also give examples where somebody walked in there yep. and didn't speak the language well and succeeded. So I guess it cuts both ways. You know, we've talked about 
Pochettino possibly going to Bayern either in the winter or waiting until next season. Supposedly, the decision is about that. They're, Bayern right now are measuring the value of giving him six months to learn German, which is what they, what Pep sure. had. Pep had like a six-month head start, and by his first press conference was already speaking German fairly well. So, you know, it, Bayern, is that the better route, or do you bring Pochettino in right away when he doesn't speak it that well? So it is a, an inter- question that teams grapple with, for sure. You mentioned uh, where it can work. So, for example, in the 94 World Cup, Bora Milutinovic was our coach. Uh, he spoke five languages, <laughs> including English, and yet he did not speak English well at all. <laughs> and and yet he was able to impart the information that he needed to upon us. And at times it was incredibly impactful and, you know, dare I say it, uh, nuanced. And he was kind of like a, a, for me, not for everybody, but for me, it was kind of like a Yoda figure. All right. I've been watching the new, uh, the new Star Wars. Sure. They have baby Yoda and stuff yep. like that. So... Yoda can't speak, okay, but Yoda can communicate. And the specific words that Yoda chooses, not that, not Baby Yoda, Yoda, Baby Yoda can't speak at all uh, yet, yet, but we're early days. I'm sorry, I hope I'm not spoiling it for anybody. Uh, but regular Yoda, I don't know if we call him regular Yoda now that we have Baby Yoda, but regular Yoda, while he can speak the language, we know he, he mixes up words, he, doesn't, he, 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 he can't really speak it well, and yet he is able to be incredibly insightful and impart incredible wisdom in the way that he chooses those words. So yes, it absolutely can happen, but it can also get very, very frustrating if you do have a dialogue and if you want to get deeper at, at times, and that person can or cannot do that. It's funny, Gareth Bale, early in his Real Madrid career, was getting dinged for not doing interviews in Spanish. And he said, look, I speak it okay, but I don't think I speak it well enough to give thoughtful answers, so I'd rather not do that yet. And I actually defended him. Now, in Bale's case, it has been seven years, so (laughs) that excuse has probably run its course. But yeah, I don't know. I I think it's an interesting aspect of this whole Emery thing. But, But even putting aside the language issue, putting aside his tactics, his coaching ability... I think the bottom line with Unai Emery is in a year and a half there, he did not fundamentally change the dynamic at Arsenal. Even even people like you and I that are big admirers of Arsene Wenger all feel like in the last part of his Arsenal career, things got very stale there and Arsenal lost that winning mentality. We talked about it a couple of weeks ago with Liverpool and Dortmund. Arsenal very much cut out of the Dortmund cloth, sure. a club that you expect in big moments to fall short and to lose games they have no business losing. You know, we talk so much about, oh, that's typical Arsenal after they have a bad result. And after a year and a half of Emery, I still find myself thinking and saying things like that, which is the ultimate indictment. He was not able to change the dynamic yeah. there. Do you agree that was yeah. ultimately his it downfall? Was, yeah, he wasn't able to change it, and it's it's basically the same as it ever was, right? So. And it's funny because when Jurgen Klopp was at Dortmund, everybody was presuming that he would eventually wind up in the Premier League. The club I always associated him with was Arsenal, and I do wonder if Arsene Wenger had stepped away a couple of years earlier, whether they would have— you know, gotten him instead. And I, I know Liverpool fans who, the moment they hired Klopp, were very excited that they jumped ahead of Arsenal in that. And you saw what you see what he's done at Liverpool and, you know, the, the, how history might have been different. Two, two things before we move on. Uh, one, Jurgen Klopp, you brought him up. And, and as it relates to his speaking, yes, he speaks English. I wonder if Jurgen Klopp, the image and what we have of him and the way that it is blown up in a wonderful way and the, the lovable rogue, you know, with the, with the, uh, the sparkle in his eye and the, if he actually spoke English perfectly, would we still have that same opinion of him? <laughs> it might be very, very different. I think he, in a certain way, is enhanced. His image is enhanced by the fact that while he does speak English, he doesn't speak it perfectly. And at times 
he's able to kind of fall back on the fact that it's not his first uh, his first language. And then I got a question for you uh, after you uh, after you respond to well, finish and, this up. And just just where Arsenal might go to next, it's kind of interesting. Uh, the U.S. Soccer Federation was criticized for not interviewing enough mm-hmm. candidates and just zeroing in on one guy. And by the way, they discarded Tata Martino reportedly because he didn't speak English. Arsenal are getting criticized for the, the United other way. States national team. <laughs> Arsenal are getting criticized. And I know we speak a lot of languages. I get it. Okay. <laughs> Arsenal are getting criticized the other way for having a 12-man, quote-unquote, shortlist, which people think speaks to their lack of direction and not having any idea of what type of manager they want. Now, it does sound like Brendan Rodgers is the, the manager they would love to hire, uh, which and they would want him to go right now. Right. Which, He's got a buyout which, clause, right? Which is, yeah, yeah, which is interesting on multiple levels. I, I, I know Brendan Rodgers, the way things ended at Liverpool, is hungry to take over another big six club and redeem himself. And Arsenal is supposedly a club that he's always had his eye on. But the timing is fascinating because, first of all, there's the whole ethical question of leaving a club in the middle of the season to take over another one. He already got in trouble for leaving Celtic when he did to take over Leicester. Maybe he doesn't want to go through that again. But also, look at the table. Leicester are second, 13 points above Arsenal, who are eighth. And by the way, Leicester have won a Premier League title a lot more recently than Arsenal have. Now, look, I'm being somewhat facetious Bring the sexy. He wants the sexy. I mean, let's be... Arsenal are are still a, quote-unquote, bigger club than Leicester. But still, the timing of it would, it, is, would it would be, be very weird. strange. <laughs> it would be it would be very very strange. All right, my last question to you before we go is this: uh, You mentioned your constant studying of the uh, French language, right? Yeah. If because we, as I mentioned, each and every pod, you are a savant. You are incredibly intelligent when it comes to the soccer. If there was a parallel to Fox over there in Spain or whatever, or a team or whatever, some some company over there that had opportunity to hire David Mossy. Okay, with the understanding that he doesn't speak French or certainly doesn't speak it at the level where there is nuance in multiple levels, admittedly, right? Yep. Or hire someone who speaks perfect French, maybe even is French, okay, but is not quite as much of a savant when it comes to the soccer world. Would you be okay if they called you up and said, you know, while you maybe, uh, maybe you have a better grasp of soccer and understanding of soccer, the reality is that we are going to go with the person that speaks French. Would that kill you a little inside? Would you be miffed at something like that? No, I mean, if it was a job in which the ability to speak French was sort of integral to the job, then I, I couldn't be uh, uh, offended if that was ultimately like a determining okay. factor in favor of somebody Do you, else. And you believe that coaching a soccer team, the ability to speak a language that the majority of the players speak is integral to the job? I would say so. Okay, we'll see with that. I love it, Moss. You did a great job this uh, this week. Uh, I really, really enjoyed that conversation. And chime in out there if you agree or disagree out there with uh, with David and anything that we say uh, throughout the podcast. Please chime in and let us know. All right, moving on. Ask Alexi. Okay, it's time for uh, Ask Alexi, that point in the show where we use that hashtag Ask Alexi. We pick some questions, comments, concerns out there from the old uh, social media platforms, uh, and we pick Two or three of them. And this week, what do the folks want to know, Mossy? First up, at Brett Just One T. Okay. Would love to hear your guesses at the 10 cities that will get bids. He is referring Ooh, to okay. the 2026 World Cup. Yeah. Okay, so 2026, just so uh, everybody understands how this works. Obviously, uh, as a country, and in this case it was joint, so it was multiple countries, the United States, Mexico, and Canada, bid on hosting the 2026 Men's World Cup. It was awarded to us. Rah, rah, happy, happy, joy, joy. Uh, Usually what has happened in the past is there is then a World Cup committee 
that is put together, organizing committee that is put together. What FIFA has done now is kind of taken it in-house. So you have these bid cities, uh, all these potential cities to host. But as opposed to going to a central entity, it is now going through FIFA. So they're kind of left to their own devices out there to, to figure out what it is. And so all these, uh, all these cities are bidding. And I will read them off here so that everybody has an idea. Atlanta, Baltimore, Boston, Cincinnati, Dallas, Denver, Houston, Kansas City, Los Angeles, Miami, Nashville, New York, and New Jersey, Orlando, Philadelphia, San Francisco slash San Jose, Seattle, and DC. And they'll pare this down to, uh, I think, 10. So we're at 17. Now, we're not including the uh, venues in Canada or Mexico right now when it comes to this question from uh, Brett. Okay, so you say, well, how do you pick them? Is it just by size? Is it just by popularity? Is it, is it uh, by the amount of tourists that you think will get it? All of that plays into how they are ultimately going to, uh, uh, to pick. All right, some no-brainers. Uh, Mossy, tell me if you agree with this. Uh, New York, New Jersey, done. Yep. When it comes to Los Angeles, done. Okay, so that's two. I do think that what Atlanta has become, that it has become almost a no-brainer. We do know that back in 1994, back in the 1900s, Atlanta was not uh, one of the uh, cities that hosted uh, the 1994 Men's World Cup. All right, so that's three, Los Angeles, New York, and Atlanta. I am going to say that with what Seattle has become, that that is another one that didn't host in 1994, but is a a, uh, put-it-in-pen type of thing. I am going to say that just because of what DC is, that that is one. So uh, one, two, three, four, five. Dallas, I think, is one. Boston, I think, is one. Uh, so how many is that now that I've got there? Uh, so now we have to, I think we do have to have a Florida type of uh, area. So that just narrows it down to Miami or Orlando. I think it's going to be Miami with what is going on there with Beckham and all that kind of stuff. I think ultimately that's a place plus from a a destination, and I know Orlando, I love you, Orlando, but we'll see. Maybe you'll get in here at the end. Uh, what else, Mossy? What else do you think is a is a, a shoe-in? I already have Dallas, so Houston is going to be on the edge there of possibly uh, for two when it comes to uh, Texas. Philadelphia, I'm, I'm just not sure that Philadelphia does it. Now, some of these other new ones would be your Cincinnati's, your Nashville's. Do you think Cincinnati or Nashville – I mean, who knows, by 2026, Nashville might be a completely different type of situation here, but obviously coming in with Major League Soccer, it could just blossom, and it's a wonderful place. People kind of dig it. I'm, I'm going to say Nashville is going to be kind of like the what Detroit was back in 1994, in that not that Detroit isn't a great city. I love it. It's my home city, but not a lot of people that were coming for the World Cup had ever been to Detroit. So I'm going to put Nashville, which is much more popular than Detroit. So there, I got that one. So now is... Baltimore in your list, do you think, Mossy? No, that doesn't strike Okay, me Baltimore doesn't work. I need one more from either Philadelphia, Orlando, Kansas City, Houston, Denver, or Baltimore. Philadelphia. Philly. Yeah. All right. We have spoken. All right, there you go, uh, Brett. This is these are the uh, these are the things. Now, as we also know, FIFA works in mysterious ways. And so this may be complete. Well, I mean, it's just, it's just, this is just our, our, our opinion. But as these bids start to come in, and don't think for a second that it's not political. 
And don't think for a second that these bids don't have incentives, are, aren't going to put their best foot forward. And I do think that there are going to be some surprises. Surprise to the extent that we have a World Cup in the United States that features a place like Kansas City? I don't know. But you talk about a, a like for like when it comes to Kansas City or Detroit, maybe that's a, a much better comparison. But things can happen. Strange things can happen. All right, Brett, uh, those are the, uh, the, the things. Let us know what your 10 are out there. And this is going to this is going to change as we as we go on and as we find out more. But we don't know a whole lot yet about how this process is going to work. And having talked to some people out there, they don't know a whole lot about how the process is working. As I said, they're kind of running blind as to what they need to do. Yes, there are some criteria and some uh, minimum standards that you have to meet, and obviously they're going to meet those. But since it's all going and being, the clearinghouse is FIFA, it'll be interesting to see ultimately what those 10 sites will be when it comes to the U.S. in 2026. All right, Mossy, what's next? Next up, at Nelson B. Stats. Favorite and least favorite international opponent over the years, or is the obvious answer to both Mexico? Hmm, interesting. So... Back in the day, I played a lot of games. You look at my generation, I've said this before, a lot of us have ridiculous amounts of caps because for two years, all we did was play international games gearing up for the 94 World Cup. And there were a lot of usual suspects along the way. If you look at times, we, we ended up playing teams like Bolivia a bunch of times, Colombia a bunch of times, people that just kind of came through Jamaica were always good for a game uh, here or there. Yes, the Mexico games were and continue to be special from a player perspective, from a fan uh, perspective. I always tell people when they ask me the most difficult place to play, but it's not my least favorite, is Saprisa, old Saprisa Stadium down in Costa Rica. Uh, it was the most difficult environment, much more difficult than Azteca. But if I have to answer, my favorite team to play against, hmm, we played a bunch of games against, speak of the, uh, speaking of uh, Germany, we talked about that early in the pod, we played a bunch of games against Germany. It was always fun because there, there was a strange respect, and while they were undoubtedly a better team than us, the way that they played, I think we matched up with them well. Same thing uh, with, with an England. So those, those would be some of my favorites. My least favorites to play? I don't know about least favorite. Uh, I never enjoyed playing against like, uh, oh my God, I don't know. Uh, I'm trying to think. I, 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 it's not that I didn't enjoy playing against Mexico, but at times when we were playing against Mexico at home and it wasn't a home game, which was often whenever we were playing in the United States, especially back then, it always used to anger me. It used to irritate me. I, I understood exactly why it was happening. And thankfully, that has changed uh, a lot. We can still play a home game in the U.S. and have it be an away game for the U.S. But it always, it was, it was not my favorite because I knew that not only do we have to play against a very good, good team and our biggest rival, but we, we never were, we never had that advantage. We often didn't have that advantage playing against them, and so I felt like we were playing with one hand behind our back, and that got a little old after a while. On the topic of Germany, just to bring it back around to your State of the Union, yeah. uh, the opening match of the 98 World Cup, I know you uh, were an unused substitute that day. You lost 2-0. One of the goals, courtesy of Jurgen Klinsmann. Yes, indeed. Andy Moeller. He got took it, one, right? yeah. yeah. Andy Moeller uh, off a uh, set piece. Jurgen took it wonderful. Took it right off his chest and put it right over Casey Keller's head. I, I sat on the uh, bench and watched that all transpire in front of me. 
Now, um, remind me again, when you think U.S.-Argentina in the 90s, obviously you think of the 95 Copa America, mm-hmm. the 3 no win. You scored uh, Maradona going in the dressing room after the game. Were there any other games against Argentina in the 90s that are memorable to you, or was that really the one? Not that, that I remember. I can't even remember playing against them at any other time. So, and that's, I mean, I know the U.S. has played against Argentina. I just wasn't involved in that. So, I'm one and done, baby. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> All right, what else? All right. We've arrived at the Alex Dowd fun one. Oh, really? Okay, yes. good. All right, all right. Um, well, we'll be the judge of that. Yes. How fun at it is. Corvette underscore junior, who's a better naval aviator, Maverick or Iceman? <laughs> all right, do you want to explain to the people what he's talking about here? Do you well, know what the, he's talking about? Iconic here? 80s movie Top Gun. Top Gun, yes. yes. Uh, so the two main, well, not, yeah, but the two main characters, the two, you know, Arch uh, nemeses, I guess it would be, at least for most of the... Played uh, by Tom Cruise and Val Val Kilmer. Kilmer, Val Kilmer, yes. Okay, so who is a better aviator? It's not even a question that it's Iceman, okay? Now, while for those that... I'm not ruining anything here, but for those that have seen the the movie, Tom Cruise's character, uh, Maverick, goes through a catharsis and a evolution and a change because of events that happen through it and comes out the other side. We are led to believe as a better aviator and one that will sacrifice for the group as opposed to being the lone guy who, uh, while incredibly talented, put everybody else in danger because he wasn't willing to do what was best for the group. I wasn't buying that for a second, all right? Maverick was not a team player all of a sudden. Uh, after the movie ended, Maverick went right back to being about Maverick and right back to being about himself. Now, it's not that Iceman wasn't a huge uh, egomaniac. He was. You have to be in order to fly those types of planes. But Iceman, from the very beginning of the movie, understood that it was about the group as opposed to the individual. And yes, the individual can blossom and can uh, and can be important and rise above at times of the group, but ultimately it was still about the sacrifice from the group. So... My answer to you, Little Red Corvette Jr., uh, or just Corvette Jr. here, is that Iceman, without a doubt, was the better naval aviator. Kelly McGillis uh, had to film all her scenes with Tom Cruise barefoot in that movie so she would not tower over him. It became the start of a theme in Tom Cruise's (laughs) career of all the tricks they had to pull to make him not seem tiny compared to his female love interests in the various movies he's been in. Nobody's crying for Tom Cruise just because he's (laughs) short, believe me. But uh, yeah, you're, uh, you're right. Great movie or just okay movie? Top Gun? Yeah. Ah, fun, you know. 80s commercial movie. You know. I, I watched it a little while ago, and it didn't it didn't hold up as much as I thought it was. Going By the to. way, this year is a fantastic movie year. Last night I saw Parasite, which is a movie that's. Getting I've a heard lot that's of awesome. Us. I heard yes. that's awesome. We're getting. Um, <laughs> yeah, Luis Aguilar highly recommended it. Seat back there. Yeah. And obviously, I've talked about The Irishman, which, by right. the way, I saw in the theater. I started and on The Netflix. Irishman. Don't get me started on The I've, Irishman, okay? I've, uh, I've started it. I've but devoted good. seven hours of my life in the last couple of weeks to that movie between seeing it in the theater and. I'm like, when does it start? I'm, I'm, I'm an hour and a half in. When is, tell me when it starts. By the way, I, I know we're, we're going off on a tangent here, but on the topic of, of mob uh, stories, your tweets on The Sopranos make it sound like you're a tad underwhelmed. I'm underwhelmed. I'm underwhelmed. Oh, wow. it's, a, it's, a longer, it's a longer conversation, but I will say I am. I am underwhelmed. And I know this is kind of what happens when you binge something. It's, it was probably made to be seen in 
this segmented form where you see an episode, you digest it, you think about it, and then there's at least a week or whatever before another one comes. But I'm just doing it. Uh, yeah, I'm not. I'm underwhelmed. Let's have somebody tweet and ask Alexi about The Sopranos okay. uh, next there you week. Go. So yes. if you're listening, viewers, I am, listeners I am out there, through so season can... two, just so you know. So I still have a long way to go, right. but it it it's it better pick up. <laughs> and and when it comes to the uh, what's, what's the uh, the three and a half one hour that I'm watching uh, the Irishman the Irishman good God all right <laughs> all right so that's it that's the end of uh, our uh, Ask Alexi segment use that hashtag Ask Alexi out there on all the uh, social media platforms and send us your comments questions concerns and just like we did today we'll pick a few out whether they have to do with Top Gun or not or the uh, Sopranos or uh, the Irishman or anything else out there uh, and obviously if they have to do with soccer they are uh, much more liable to get through all right moving on. The back three. All right, it's time for the uh, back three when we look through some big stories and games and moments out there. Mossy, what's in our back three this week? First up, the nominees have been announced for U.S. Men's and Women's Players of the Year. Ooh, okay. um, the six nominees for the men, Aaron Long, Weston McKinney, Jordan Morris, Christian Pulisic, Tim Ream, and Jossie Zardes. And then for the women, it's Julie Ertz, Rose Lavelle, Carly Lloyd, Alex Morgan, Alyssa Nair, and Megan Rapinoe. The winners will be announced in the second week of December. Okay, so let's start with the men because, let's be honest, they are the uh, opening band when it comes to the uh, headliners that are the U.S. women, at least for now. Okay, so for me, it comes down to between Jordan Morris and Christian Pulisic. And, I mean, Jordan Morris, first off, he was healthy the entire year. Okay, and that's an important thing because Christian Pulisic wasn't healthy the entire year. He brought it when it came to the national team, so much so that he was the driving force in terms of the attack time and time again. And as I said, he was healthy. So he was there doing it, camp in and camp out. Obviously, we know he also brought an MLS Cup to uh, uh, Seattle and... He was integral in terms of uh, starring for that team and, and bringing them to MLS Cup and winning MLS Cup. So I, I think, and I know people are going to say, oh, you're, it's MLS bias, blah, 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 blah. But I think I would have to, if I'm really being honest with myself and with the soccer gods, I would say that Jordan Morris just slightly ahead of Christian Pulisic. And I know Christian Pulisic has had a wonderful month. He's up for player of the month. He's doing he's doing great. He is playing. Obviously, he's playing at Chelsea. People will say, oh, Jordan Morris is only playing MLS at Seattle, and Christian Pulisic's playing. At That's my uh, everybody voice, right? <laughs> That's what they sound like. So, yeah, I would pick Jordan Morris as the men's national team player of the year. Do you want me to go to the women's, or do you want to comment on that first? Uh, do women's, and then we'll okay. circle back to the men. U.S. women... This is what the question is going to be. Obviously, Megan Rapinoe is a household name and has she was already a star, but she's a global star right now for what she has done on and more so off the field and, and the personality that she is. And that's where it gets interesting because if I have to vote for someone for the year for the accomplishment of what you have done in totality for the year, it's not Megan Rapinoe. Megan Rapinoe even though she won the World Cup, she didn't have a great World Cup. We've talked about this before. Neither did Alex Morgan, for that matter. Carly Lloyd didn't start on her team. Rose Lavelle is the other part of the criteria that I'm about to mention, because this, for me, I think it's Julie Ertz. She not only starred on the team that won the World Cup, she was a starter on that team. She also played many, many more games when it comes to club than the others uh, did. Went to the final, lost in the, lost in the final. So I think it's, for me, it's Julie Ertz. I'm not sure that a lot of people out there would agree with me. So my 
tandem would be Jordan Morris and Julie Ertz. Thoughts? Well, yeah, I have no issue with Julie Ertz. I mean, you could pick three or four players on this list. Sure. I mean, it's uh, I think Rapino probably is going to win it because there's just this just sense that this year belonged to her, okay. uh, whether it's really based on any sort of real footballing uh, analysis or not. Uh, as to the men, I agree with you. It's between Jordan Morris and Christian Pulisic, and it's fascinating. Um, it, this is more weighted towards the national team, but their national team numbers are kind of a wash this year. And Pulisic was better in the Gold Cup. Morris has been more of a factor in the Nations League. So then the default to the tiebreaker being club level. And it is that eternal question about how much value you assign to what a player does in Europe versus an MLS. There is something to be said for the fact that Pulisic in 2019 emerged as the first bona fide American star at a top European club. But, you know, you also have to recognize what Jordan Morris is doing in MLS in, sure. in your own domestic you league. And, um, and a lot of people won't. And, and by the way, this does come at a time when, uh, I think I mentioned this to you, about a month ago, I read a great column in the uh, Sounders at Heart mm -hmm. website, yep. which was sort of reflecting back on Jordan Morris's decision to sign with Seattle rather than Werder Bremen. There's still people to this day that criticize him for that and think that not going to Europe stunts a player's development. And not surprisingly, on a website called Sounders at Heart, this guy was positing the theory that Jordan Morris's decision has been completely validated, not only by the fact that he's won two MLS Cups and won MLS Rookie of the Year and Comeback Player of the Year, but actually his national team numbers are pretty good. His goals and assists per 90 minutes are very comparable to Pulisic's. Now, even this guy that wrote the article made, made sure to say, I'm not suggesting that he's more talented or a better player sure. than Pulisic, but he's developed nicely and been a good player for the U.S. national team. So, um, I mean, how do you, looking back, it's been four years since he made that decision, and, and it's sort of that, that whole debate is sort of going to be a part sure. of a part sure. of this whole question of who wins player of the year how do you look at that decision jordan morris made and do you agree that's been validated and what kind of weight do you give to what morris does in mls to what somebody like pulisic is doing in europe it's been completely validated he went to a place where he recognized at a young age he was smart enough to understand himself and know what he needed now it doesn't preclude him from possibly going over in the future we know there's a point where there's a go or no go type of sell by date for him but he hasn't reached that yet he continues to play well uh, we have seen players that are playing in MLS that star for the national team. You need look only to a guy like Landon Donovan uh, or DeMarcus Beasley who were starring uh, for the U.S. national team at the World Cup while playing in Major League Soccer. It, it, it happens. Jordan Morris can continue on and be a huge star or a bigger star than he already is playing in Major League Soccer, leading uh, Seattle and leading the, the national team. But he's always going to have that question that people are going to ask. Yeah, but you, you didn't live up to your potential because you didn't test yourself as if there's this requirement or stamp that you have, obviously a stamp in your passport that you have to go over to Europe and you have to test yourself. And if you don't, then you really fail to live up to what is really everybody else's criteria of what a good player is. So much so that I've had people that suggest that Christian Pulisic, and I will ask you, Christian Pulisic already is a better American soccer player when all is said and done, if it were to stop right now, than Landon Donovan. And, and to, this, to this I say to people, not even close. Christian Pulisic has yet to even step foot on the field for a World Cup, playing for the United States, okay? So don't give me that. While I love what he's doing at, at Chelsea, and I love the fact that, uh, that he's being successful and he's playing right now, it's not, even, it's not even in the same stratosphere right now of a Landon Donovan. I hope he gets there, but he's got to have that component of playing for the national team in a World Cup, I think, in terms of that compare and contrast between the two. Yeah, I think if you want to put Pulisic number one, you have to frame it as 
most talented player the U.S. has ever produced. I think there's a case to be made there that he's already demonstrated that. But if Why? Well, Christian that, Pulisic— what, is that, what does playing with Chelsea have to do with how talented he no, is? No, no, I'm, I'm saying— There's been other talented players that no, didn't, I'm saying, they you, broke their leg or something like that. Well, you, there's the most talented player. Ah, he broke his leg. He no, only played one okay, game. Okay, you can, you can disagree whether he's the most talented player or not, but but that is a way in which you can take a young player that, that still has his career ahead of him and versus a guy that's already completed his career. And if you just analyze it on a basis of talent, there's, there's, there is a, a debate to be had there. But I agree with you. If Pulisic were to retire tomorrow, having accomplished what he's accomplished, and you're ranking the greatest U.S. players of all time, you'd have to put Landon down above him just on sheer accomplishments. some people that don't. Some people put so much credence and give so much credit to playing in what, what I will admit, what a lot of people admit is an incredible league in England, that that trumps everything for them. And you clearly do not subscribe to that. I think it's ridiculous. <laughs> By the way, very quickly, on the topic of awards, João Felix did win the Golden Boy Award, which I mentioned a couple of weeks ago. Goes to the where best player from? in what, Europe uh, under the he, age of 21, uh, Portuguese, plays Portuguese. for Atlético no, Madrid. He, oh, okay, he, like, okay, he, he, he beat Portuguese. out Jaden Sancho, which I found mildly surprising, but entirely defensible. I think they're both amazing talents. And, you know, if you look back, I was having fun with our colleague Zach Kenworthy this weekend. If you look back at the past winners of this award going back to 2003, it's fascinating. It's really hit or miss in terms of which ones have aged well and which ones haven't. You have guys like Messi and Mbappe right. and Rooney and Aguero that have obviously aged very well. And then you have guys like Anderson, uh, former Manchester United midfielder, and Renato Sanchez. And then you have these gray area ones like Mario Gutza. Would you argue that that's aged well, him winning yeah. the Golden Boy Award? It's kind of an interesting one. Uh, but so João Felix wins that. And, and finally, we are taping this on Monday morning as the Ballon d'Or ceremony is taking place Anything in Paris. Nothing? Uh, no. Alex Dowd monitoring. It out. <laughs> in the last 24 hours, it has leaked that Messi is going to win the award. So um, the, the Spanish media is already talking as if it's a formality. So it'll be his sixth Ballon d'Or. Uh, and Liverpool fans are already furious over him getting it instead of Van Dyke. Uh, now, if by chance that doesn't happen, Alex Dowd will just edit out this whole portion of the podcast. But it's pretty much like an accepted fact now that Messi is going to win it uh, today. So yeah. we'll, we'll talk about if you're angry week. that Leo Messi <laughs> has won the best player of the year, man, you need to seek help, okay? I mean, and if you're going to lose, if you're Van Dyke, you know, and, <laughs> lose and, to and, Messi. And this past weekend, he, Messi did score an incredible winner for Barcelona away to Atletico Madrid. So he sort of goes into this award ceremony on a, on a major high. Right. Um, well, we'll, we'll look forward to hearing uh, Jurgen Klopp's reaction. <laughs> All right, moving on okay. to Manchester United, who this past weekend played to a 2-2 draw at home against Aston Villa. They are ninth in the Premier League. Mm. 18 points at this stage represents their worst start to a league campaign since 1988. And that has led to suggestions that Ole Gunnar Solskjaer might not be long for the job. And, Suggestions? <laughs> and, Demands. Yes. By the way, they also lost to Astana in the Europa League last week. And fascinating week coming up for Manchester United. I mean, you can't make it up sometimes, the soccer gods. Yeah. So their next game is home to Tottenham on Wednesday. Tottenham, who I remind you, are managed by Jose Mourinho, the man who Solskjaer replaced at United. Yep. And then... Uh, at the weekend, they're away to Manchester City. So a lot of people think the one-two punch of those two games, I mean, if they get embarrassed, that United are going to feel compelled to make a change. Let's start there. I mean, what's your overall thought here, uh, United going into these two games? You hired him as an interim, as a stopgap, as just somebody to get you, and you fell into that trap that happened so many times. You started to produce some good results, and everybody's feeling good, and now you're, now you're stuck with him. Just six wins in 22 Premier League games since he was made the permanent manager. 
it, sh it should have been changed a while ago, okay? I mean, this is, this is, this is ridiculous at this point, right, <laughs> right, right now with, with, what they, with what they have or maybe what they, they want to be. The question becomes, is it really, I mean, we know it's not all him, okay? And he can only do with, you know, work with what, he, with what he has. But if you had said, all right, look, Ole came in, it was temporary, and you had lived up to what you planned and then made a change and brought in someone much higher profile with much more experience, would you be in a better position? Well, it's, it's a hypothetical. We don't know. But I, they have no one to blame but themselves that they find themselves in, in this position. Why, why is this taking so long? And, of course, the ultimate irony is if Mourinho goes in there, delivers the death blow to Sochar, they get rid of him, the manager they would presumably go after is Pochettino, the guy that Mourinho just replaced at Tottenham. So but it, is Solskjaer, are they waiting and giving him time because he's going to turn turn the corner over the summer and all of a sudden become this yeah. this this great change maker of, of players and the team? They just don't want to fire another manager again. They think it, it, it speaks to dysfunction if you're constantly changing managers and you at some point you just got to just give a Bayern guy a Bayern Munich chance. says, hey, <laughs> look at us. Look what we do. When it's not going well, we say no, no, it, it's not so funny to me. I, I I saw, an, saw an interview with Ed Woodward where, again, he's throwing around this word rebuild. Well, you got it takes time to rebuild. And I keep asking this question about United. Is this still the post-Ferguson rebuild, right. which is going We're on seven track. years? Is this the post-Van Hall rebuild, the post-Moringa rebuild? You have to let me know when this quote-unquote rebuild started so we can assess how long it's taking, how long it should take. But why are you rebuilding when... with a, a temporary <laughs> manager? And Moringa, by the way, just to end on him, uh, he took over a team in 14th. And without having done all that much yet, they beat West Ham and Bournemouth. They've already shot up to 5th. And they're six points back of Chelsea. Alex Dowd can feel Jose Mourinho breathing down his <laughs> neck. Uh, and plus a win over Olympiacos. They qualified to the round of 16 of the Champions League. So, But this win over United, look, it, this is a kinder, gentler Mourinho. He's saying all the right things. And I don't think he has any personal animosity towards Solskjaer, but I'm sure he would love to go in there and, and, and spank Manchester United, and he would take great pleasure out of that. And that really would sort of validate that this has been a good start for him and sort of cement that good feeling right oh, now with him at Tottenham. I would love to see that. I'm, I'm here for that. <laughs> That's, that would be wonderful. All right, what else? All right, we will end on this. Last week, the draw for Euro 2020 took place. Uh, now, we only know 20 of the 24 teams. There are still four spots that will be filled via the playoffs, which you and I tried to figure out before we started taping this podcast. And uh, It's impossible. It's, it's, it's so <laughs> we've decided uh, that we're not even going to go down that path. But a couple of big picture questions first. For this tournament, they're doing something different. There is not a host nation. It's right. going to be held across 12 different countries. The tournament begins at the Olimpico in Rome with Italy facing Turkey. It will conclude at Wembley, the semifinals and finals. This is a Michel Platini initiative. He feels like this uh, eliminates like a country having to spend all this money to build stadiums and fix airports. And also it gives more fans a chance to go see games. It gives teams a chance to play quote-unquote home games, which will make for a better atmosphere. There are those that think it creates a very disconnected feeling. You lose that sense of a tournament if you have games going on all over the place. And by the way, it's just a one-off because Euro 2024, they're going back to the traditional way of doing it. Germany has already been anointed the host for that tournament. Uh, what do you make of this whole concept of holding an international tournament across 12 different countries? It doesn't devalue it, but it, it does dilute it a little bit in terms of... I, I, when I think of tournaments, even the joint one, we talked earlier about the, the joint 2026 one, I think that's that's okay, but a tournament is there as an advertisement for 
a region, an area, in many, in most cases, traditionally, it's a country. And when we go and do these tournaments, and I've done so many of them now, you leave not just with the goals and the winners and the games and all that kind of stuff, those memories on the field, but you leave with an impression of the country, the culture, the people, because you are immersed in it from a time. And a lot of these, whether it's Olympics or, or World Cups uh, or Euros or anything else, a lot of this a lot of this bidding, we've talked about bidding uh, earlier, is done to encourage people to come and visit and be part of it and understand it more than they have. Some who've never been there before, some who have only been there uh, a few times and don't really know, and within the context of an actual soccer tournament. And so that, I, I love when I see the, the streets of whatever city and, and country we're in reference the fact that there's this tournament going on. There's an understanding that something is celebrating your country and your culture when you go to these places. And I think that will be lost. It'll just be a tournament that's happening, but we're not actually within that tournament celebrating a people and a culture and a country. And I think that's too bad because that's, for me, kind of paints a, 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 a tournament. Now, it, you can still get to the different places and stuff like that. I just think it will be it'll just be a lot less interesting if you will those those stories and those bigger pictures that we, that we talk about it'll just be games being played it'll be just another qualification type of thing another thing format wise i personally am not a fan of 24 team international tournaments because i have a philosophical issue games. with the third place yeah. finisher and a four team group advancing and you have that here the four best third place finishers which to me takes a little bit of of the oomph out of um, the big thing that the draw threw up is there's a group with Portugal, France, and Germany. Portugal, obviously, the reigning European champions, and I think they've improved since then with the emergence guys like João Felix and Bernardo Silva alongside Ronaldo. France, your reigning world champions who are trying to do what they've done once before, which is follow up a World Cup happen? title with a Euro. They won 98 in 2000, and then obviously Germany. Yeah, Isn't from that a, supposed to be? From, like... from, a, from a seating standpoint, pots or whatever, it, it is amazing that that could happen. I'm sure it's a but, star lining type of thing. That but, they... you know... All three could theoretically advance. Now, it's going to be some great games, so I'm excited for that, but all three could theoretically advance, which to me takes just a little bit of the oomph out of like, seeing those three teams in the same but group. But for all of those you know, with the tinfoil on that say you know, what the, uh, the, the balls have are, are, are cold or hot and stuff like that, and it's all uh, orchestrated. And believe me, it, there's a lot of it that is legally orchestrated by the way that they, they, they do that stuff. You can't do here, you can't do that. But to let, let this happen where the potential is that a very, very good team is not, going to, uh, is not going to go on, that's just bad organization. That's just bad business. And, uh, I mean, it makes for a, a wonderful group type of uh, situation. And if they are one of the best third-place teams, then they, they go on and that happens. But it just it, when, you, when you see it in front of you, you're, you're – Eyes and your mind are immediately drawn to that. And this group, with whoever the fourth place team is, I mean, if it's Iceland, I mean, could it be Iceland, right? Possibly or something. Anyway, it could be whoever ends up being that fourth place team. By the way, Iceland, I have a whole, it's a whole other subject. I'll get into another day. I'm irritated about Iceland too. Anyway. Oh, wow. I'm irritated. Uh, so this group F is going to, I think, suck up so much oxygen and air from the tournament that a lot of these other groups aren't going to get their, uh, aren't, aren't going to get their due. And it's, once again, they've created this situation. A few other notes. And this tournament is uh, six months away, so we'll have plenty of time to sure. discuss it. But two countries that missed out on the last World Cup, Italy and the Netherlands. In the Netherlands case, they've missed out on the last two major tournaments. And unlike the U.S., they've kind of 
taken that stink off and have gotten people excited again. Italy had a sparkling qualifying campaign. They won all 10 games. Now, not exactly a murderer's row of opposition. It was Greece, Finland, sure. Armenia, Liechtenstein, and Bosnia. But they did play very well. Roberto Mancini um, got a nice midfield there with Verratti and Jorginho and, and Sensi and Barella and, and young players coming through like Tonali and Zaniolo. So Italy is kind of looking like looking at this tournament as a chance to sort of reestablish itself on the world stage. And then the Netherlands, too, who I think this cycle has been even more impressive than Italy. They have competitive wins over France and Germany and England. They got to the Nations League final and obviously the emergence of guys like Van Dijk and Wijnaldum with Liverpool and Frankie de Jong and Matthias de Litt. So it'd be interesting to see those two countries. I mean, and they, they, there wasn't the reckoning that there was in the U.S. when those two teams didn't qualify. I'm not saying that there weren't ramifications, but there was a much more of a recognition that, look, this is an anomaly. This is just something that happened. Uh, it is a wake-up call. We'll make the changes necessary, but we'll be right back at it, which, as you said, they are. Spain, too, and this could be a whole separate podcast, so I'll just mention it quickly here, but they're dealing with a crazy coaching situation. We were in Moscow in the summer of 2018 when that whole Lopetegui thing blew up one day before the World Cup, and and it sort of happened again here. It's a sad story. Luis Enrique had to step away because his nine-year-old daughter uh, was dealing with uh, bone cancer. She's since passed away. But so he handed the reins to his longtime assistant right-hand man, Roberto Moreno, initially on an interim basis. Somewhere along the line, Moreno was given the impression that Enrique wasn't going to come back and he was going to be the manager for the Euros. And then it ended up that Enrique did come back and it was Moreno felt like it was handled in a somewhat underhanded way. And so it's caused this rift between Moreno and Enrique and it sort of split the country. Some people on Enrique's side, others on Moreno. So what should be this happy story of Luis Enrique, who after dealing with this personal tragedy is kind of ready to return to the bench, instead has become this this crazy circus, which, you know, you hope by the time the tournament comes around that that's sort of blown over. And, and Well, it's also proof that just because you speak the same language, language doesn't mean that there can't be problems when it comes to communication, because this is... This is a communication problem yes. here in terms of what was communicated and what wasn't communicated, regardless of what language. And then finally, England and Croatia are in the same group, which means we will have a rematch of that uh, incredible World Cup semifinal that Croatia won. So that'll be fun. I think that's the other one that jumped sure. out at me when I saw the draw. Well, it'll be a big tournament uh, next summer. Our, f- uh, our friends over there at ESPN will be the ones uh, televising it, but we look forward to it. I'm going to watch it uh, for a number of reasons, not the least of which is this Group F that undeniably is the group of death. I'm sure there'll be some cool people that say, oh, no, that's not really the group of death. This is the group of death over here, but that's the group of death. Do you think there's any chance that Alex Dowd and Luis Aguilar can figure out the playoff thing? If we gave them, like, not a several hours to, to... Not a chance in hell. No. So no. we'll just have to wait for those games to happen Whatever and where happens, those teams happens. get plugged yeah, in. We'll, we'll get that fourth yes. uh, team. All right, anything else, Mossy? Uh, nope. All right, so we've come to the end of uh, yet another podcast. We want to thank you for tuning in. And at the end of each and every podcast, we do our our uh, one big thing. This week, I'm not going to talk specifically about what I was talking in the State of the Union. It's actually much more about some of the stuff that we have talked about over this pod and over numerous pods and about the, uh, the grass is always greener type of situation. At times, the grass... Uh, can be greener and it can be much more fertile and much more uh, advantageous when we look overseas. Uh, We live in a country obviously that has come to the sport very late relative to other countries and cultures out there. I like to think that we have made up as much distance, uh, not as anybody, as anybody out there and more than anybody out there. But we still have a a long way to go. And so therefore, the uh, enticing nature of what is uh, outside of our country, and in particular uh, over in Europe, has been and continues to be something that players, young players, coaches, everybody uh, will look at. Uh, if, if your only goal is to get to Europe to play soccer 
And as I've said before, there are flights leaving each and every hour on the hour from JFK or LAX uh, or any place else in between. But getting to the right place where you are comfortable, where you understand the language, where you're able to communicate in the language, where you're able to assimilate and adapt to the culture, where you are valued, where you have playing time, where if you have a family, your wife, your kids, or anybody else that's around you is comfortable while you're off doing what you're doing. That's a whole, that's a whole nother story. And so when we look at someone like Christian Pulisic, who at a young age took that upon himself and decided with his family that he wanted to go over to what he felt were uh, greener pastures over in Europe, and it certainly has worked out for him. We hear about the Christian Pulisic. We don't hear about the 99% of players where it didn't work out, and they weren't in environments that were uh, where the grass was greener. And then we look at someone like uh, Jordan Morris, who said, you know what? This is where my green grass is uh, to stay here. Uh, everybody takes different paths, and everybody looks at their life, and everybody looks at their life when it comes to soccer in different uh, ways. There is no right way. I get asked almost every day by players, by friends, by parents, by whoever, you know, what, what should my son or daughter and daughter do? There is no right way. Yes, you can hedge your bets uh, here and there, but there is no right way to quote unquote, be a soccer player, be a professional soccer player, play in a World Cup, play on professionally, whatever it ends up being, whatever your uh, goal is out there. And just because it looks better doesn't necessarily uh, make it better. And one of the things that we talk about on this pod is the fact that we have an entire culture here in the United States, a strange, different, but ultimately unique, and I think uh, an incredibly robust and passionate and knowledgeable culture when it comes to the soccer over here that sometimes gets downplayed, that sometimes gets tossed out of the way, that oftentimes isn't given the credit. You're not going to be given the credit. Uh, you have, sometimes have to take that credit. But when you're looking at players and when you're looking at people that do decide to go a, a certain path, it may or may not work out. And just because it's worked out for somebody else doesn't mean it's going to uh, work out for you. So, uh, you know, while we talk about uh, players and we talk about whether they are the best or whether they can be the best or whether this is going to work out for them, we should just you know, understand that, as I said, there is, there is no right way. And many in, in the future when we're talking about players, it's fascinating to me to see the diverse and the varying type of pathways that some of our greatest players have taken. It's not cookie cutter. And it won't be for a long time, and it probably will never be, especially because of the unique aspects of our soccer uh, community and our soccer landscape uh, that exists. So take heart in that. Um, understand that there's not one way to figure out uh, where you're going. And you might take multiple paths along the way. So with that, Mossy, anything to uh, add before we go? Nope. All right. Thank you so much for uh, tuning in each and every week. Thank you so much for writing uh, your uh, ask uh, using the ha uh, hashtag ask Alexi out there when you're writing us uh, comments questions and concerns please download please rate see, please review please subscribe please do all that things on all the uh, different podcast uh, platforms out there that we have we will see you again and talk to you again next week uh, from here in Los Angeles and until then size the day <laughs>